Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm chatting to Luke Larative, an investment specialist who actually happens to have a background in mining. Luke and I talk about all of the lithium companies, as well as three companies that are at the top of his list, including Vulcan Energy, which trades under the ticker symbol VUL, Credit Corp, which is the ticker symbol CCP, and Alders, which is ELD, all on the ASX. We chat for about five minutes about Luke's business before diving into these companies and why he finds them interesting. The first two thirds of the conversation is all about lithium, how lithium is extracted, the industry, mines, the ROI, the MPVs on all of these important and need to know companies in Australia. And then we get into Elders and Credit Corp and why those businesses could be very interesting and in a state of change for all the right reasons. I hope you enjoy this episode with Luke Larative. If you like the series, don't forget to leave us a kind review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe because we do this every week. Thanks for listening. Luke Larative, how you going, mate? Owen, how are you, Matt? Good to see you. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you too, mate. Recording from home. Got the sweet studio with the Seneca set up behind <laughs> you. I like it. <laughs> mate, it's a, uh, it's a luscious lifestyle down here in Torquay. Very, very lucky. Yeah, it is. So just for everyone's knowledge, uh, Luke and I do share an office, but it's pretty rare that nowadays that we're both in on the same day. So I'm in, you're not. That's all good. Mate, I know you do a lot of the like the TV. I know you, you're like, you've got heaps of clients you're flying around the country all the time, but this is the first time on the podcast. So tell us a little bit about yourself, mate. Like, what do you do? What's the business? Like, let's just start there and then we'll get into some really interesting companies. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm Luke. I'm 36. Um, I've got a partner, Claire. We're, we've got no kids. Um, I've got four surfboards. I live in Torquay and sort of commute between Melbourne and Torquay. Seneca, we started a bit over five years ago with my business partners, JB and Vic. We came out of a you know, short, short stockbroking or shore and partners and kind of moved all our clients and, and got our own license and, and got into the sort of, I suppose, independent sort of financial advisor kind of business, you know, uh, five years ago. Uh, we look after high net worth clients, family offices, charities, but you know, for my client base and the people that I speak to, got a distinct sort of focus on on business owners um, mm. and, that, and sort of entrepreneurially minded professionals. Generally, people who are a bit more interested in what's happening in the world, a bit more interested in what's happening in markets. You know, want to have active participation and an interest in what they're doing, but but don't have time or expertise to do it on a day to day basis. So. That's kind of our business. We do a bit over 300 million bucks at the moment. Uh, yeah, I, I pretty much just focused on on the investment side. I don't do a lot of sort of strategic advice or, you know, open an SMSF or open a family trust or, you know, put money into super. I don't really do that kind of stuff. Um, I mainly just, just focus heavily on. Is it mainly Aussie equities or is it everything? Everything. So so we do everything up and down sort of, you know, the asset classes from from direct Aussie equities, um, you know, right down the market, the market cap uh, to small caps to unlisted to fixed income um, to absolute return products. Um, you know, we run a, a range of managed accounts and um, mm. they kind of cover all the asset classes so a client can come in and whatever their risk profile is, whatever their sort of needs and objectives are, we can kind of put together a, 
you know, bespoke sort of solution for them, you know, from their perspective meets, meets their objectives and, and helps them get where they want to go. And from our perspective is sort of scalable, manageable, and we can give clients a really good consistent service, whether that's a million bucks or a hundred million bucks. Yeah. That's really, that's what I was going to ask you about anyway, because you're kind of like really on the, at the pointy end of that, like helping people get invested in a managed product and kind of, I know this is what you're working on now. It's like doing it all online, facilitating that, uh, which is really cool. Just for, for people that don't know, can you just maybe describe the difference between um, like a managed account and a traditional fund structure? Like what are the benefits, I guess? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, both have got pros and cons. There's no um, right answer to this stuff. And we certainly use use unit trusts or, you know, traditional managed funds uh, for clients. Um, but I really like the, the, the SMA, the separately managed account um, format for, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is from an investor's perspective, you're getting, you get all the benefits of having like a HIN and direct shares. So, you know, you get your, your dividends paid to you directly. You can get your franking credits through your tax return as you normally would. Um, yep. You get to see all the holdings. You get to see all the transactions that happen on the account. Um, you get to look at your log in and see BHP and CSL and everything else that you own, but you don't actually have to worry about trading them. The trading just happens automatically for you. So it's like, um, it's like a subscription to, to IP, essentially, um, and you, someone's just in your portfolio doing it for you, um, and you, you get all those benefits. And I think um, without having to actually do anything, um, but you don't lose the benefits of having a direct share portfolio. I think second as well, a unit trust, one of the kind of drawbacks is if you buy a unit trust halfway through the tax year, your returns that year are going to be impacted by capital gains tax that you actually haven't received capital gains for. So there's sort of embedded tax um, kind of costs in, in, in the unit trust um, and they are carried forward, you know, forever. So um, I, I think that it's really, um, you know, it's th those transparency benefits and, and then, yeah, some little financial benefits that make managed accounts good. Uh, what makes them difficult from, from my perspective is you don't get a lot of control over your execution. So normally, um, you know, you would be executing in the market, you might be, you know, clicking a few shares through at any given time, um, you know, buying an order over a week, a month, uh, you know, um, a year, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever it may be, um, uh, or selling, vice versa. But with a managed account, you normally just get the opportunity to trade on the platform at VWAP. So um, if I'm selling, you know, 10,000 CBA today and someone else is buying, we kind of just pre-agree to trade at VWAP. There's no brokerage charge on that transaction, but it does allow us... Um, it doesn't allow us to kind of pick up some extra points on execution yeah. uh, and also set, settling, getting into placements um, and, and those kind of things can be difficult um, or, you know, mm. not possible on a platform. So, uh, you know, in the small cap land, I think SMAs are harder, um, but for large cap or even mid cap, sort of up to sort of a billion or $500 million market cap, it kind of works okay because you're not generating as much alpha from kind of corporate actions for lack of a better word whereas in small cap land i would argue that you know 30 40 percent of your alpha comes from you know essentially corporate access yeah so access to deals access to raises yeah and, yeah and yeah, those liquidity events and it depends on your strategy too you know like if you're uh, regal well it's it's the core of their strategy is access to placements yeah. um you know another fund manager who might be more you know, long-term focus, focused on, you know, thematics or whatever the hell they do, uh, probably would be less focused on, a you know, generating alpha from a placement. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And one of the things, I think we spoke about this in Noosa is um, with the SMAs is the tax as well. Like you mentioned it there briefly, but it's more like control as well. Like it, you can yeah. some, in some way manage like the, like you mentioned the capital gains, but also just like, you have the transparency tax well. treatment, essentially, yeah. yeah. So you get, you know, if you've got an SMA, excuse me, um, you can set it up to, you know, last in, first out, first in, last out, um, yeah, maximize gain, maximize loss, uh, minimize, minimize gain, whatever you want to do. Um, you can set up those kind of rules, um, and you can also set exclusions. So even though, say, like my SMA, my ASX two hundred SMA, isn't an ESG. Um, product. I don't, I don't have any particular bias to not buying coal stocks or whatever. I have heaps of clients who are ESG focused and all I do is I say, okay, well, what sectors do you want to avoid? And they go, I don't want to buy thermal coal and I don't want to buy oil and gas. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I just go and click on the stocks that are oil and gas and coal and be happy to exclude these stocks and include these stocks. 
and the portfolio automatically rebalances along, along, along the lines of some rules that we've set up such that those clients still get all of our IP, just X the stuff they're not interested in. And I can do that for any stock. If you say, oh, I've got a massive holding in CBA I inherited from grandma, um, I just don't want to buy any more CBA. I can just exclude CBA and you get the rest of our IP, mm. um, X any, any additional CBA. So I think they're pretty flexible now these days. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, we've seen some pretty good growth um, in, in our product um, and the, the five other products we've just, just launched. Yeah, cool, mate. So if people want to find out more, they can head to the Seneca website. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Uh, you can get in contact with Luke and the team that way. But mate, um, I guess there's a, I guess there's a lot to cover, but I do want to get to these um, three companies that we've outlined, which are Elders, Vulcan, and uh, Credit Corp, which are really mm-hmm. interesting companies for totally different reasons. Like all of them are completely different, um, but they're still really interesting, particularly on Twitter. There's a lot of um, action around these three names. So but before we get to that, can you just like tell us a bit about like, I just want to kind of like unpack how you think about investing just real quick. Like, how would you characterize like your investment philosophy and the way you go about finding companies? Yeah, I think investing is pretty, I, I like to keep it pretty simple. I'm not a super academic, smart person. I just, uh, you know, kind of apply, you know, straight sort of knowledge, I suppose. And 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 that's kind of been the basis of, of me getting into investing. Um but I think, uh, you know, you just start, well, you've got to understand what your objective is to start with. And I think it's sort of two primary risk objectives is, you know, you're going to maximise return for an agreed level of risk or you're going to minimise risk for an agreed level of return. And that's pretty much it. Like there's nothing else to it. So you, you once you've defined your objective, okay, I want a 7% return as safely as possible or I want the best possible return for, you know, these kind of qualitative or quantitative risk metrics. Um that, that's that's kind of where you start. And then once you've identified that, you really just go about building a portfolio or maintaining a portfolio of assets that can help you sort of uh, meet that, that criteria and, and match that criteria. So we, you know, there's lots of different ways to make money in the market. There's lots of different strategies that work. I think there's a lot of strategies in the market that people buy that actually don't work or don't have much sort of academic, um, I suppose, standing behind uh, investing like that. But the way that we choose to invest and the way that works for me um, and our clients is we sort of focus on quality businesses. Um, we focus on sort of a medium level of concentration um, and diversification as a general comment. And, and we fo- and you know we tend to just avoid the things that what I would call are outside my zone of competence or outside what I would argue you know most people's zone of confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, confidence, I'm sorry. So um, you know to pack that a little bit more specifically, like a portfolio of 20 to 40 companies in a single asset class, mm-hmm. um, say in Aussie equities. Um, you know, when I talk about quality, I'm talking about sort of sustainable moats. I'm talking about management with a good track record and skin in the game. I'm talking about, you know, modest, modest gearing for what they're trying to do. Um, I'm talking about, a, you know, sustained competitive advantage, um, you know, high returns on sort of equity, return on invested capital type metrics is a general comment. Um, you know, normally growing, expanding margins are kind of things that, that we like and, a, and an ability to kind of grow your business, um, you know, year on year. Uh, above kind of sector, above your peers, above the above the GDP growth of the country, or you know whatever the be- benchmark may be. So they're the kind of businesses that we see um, opportunity in, and we try to identify those companies at times when there's been a shift um, in in the way that business um, might interact with their customers and their and their marketplace going forward. So uh, we like to see you know look to look for opportunities where businesses are winning market share. Um, and uh, businesses that are able to win market share for incrementally less money. So um, there's lots of companies that can win market share by spending mm. more and more money on marketing, um, but mm. there's very few companies that can win more market share by spending less and less money on marketing every year. So to us, that they're the sort of um, companies we like to buy. Do we buy businesses that don't fit that criteria? Sure. Um, mm. But, it, you know, we want... Uh, we want a portfolio that kind of looks, you know, three quarters like that. And then we might be some special situations. There might be a value idea. Um, there might be a, you know, breakup idea, you know, something else. You know, it's not a, it's not a hard and fast, it yeah. must fit this criteria. And it's certainly not um, across the entire market. What I look for in a non-bank financial is not what I'm looking for in a, you know, manufacturing industrial. It's a, you've kind of got to fit the, fit the model to the industry and, and the nature of the industry. Mm. 
yeah agreed particularly with the you know the financials the banks whatever that's a yeah really interesting um mate so you actually touched on something there which was change and i think we chatted briefly but the three companies that um i asked you well you you gave me a list and i and we identified these three as really interesting because these three are going through change and pretty dramatic change um i don't know which order you want to take it but i feel like one of the ones that we've never covered on the show is balkan mm-hmm. um and this is just such a highly you know talked about industry in 2022 it's basically been lithium and coal and then yeah. it's everything else right like so um can you talk us through uh vulcan um i guess renewable energy obviously sort of sustainable energy sources renewable energy sources, like everything like what initially drove you to vulcan the industry at large like just give us the 101 mate there's so much to talk about yeah there's lots to talk about so a bit of background i used to be uh work for vale the uh, world's largest iron ore miner and big in the steel sector i sold metallurgical and thermal coal for them so i've had a bit of a background in sort of supply mm-hmm. demand pricing for for energy um and, and had a bit of a look at that you know for as a job so I've always kind of been interested in the energy transition um, and I suppose, yeah, sustainably powering stuff. Um, You know, it's not sustainable just to keep, um, you know, pillaging the earth on a day-to-day basis. So uh, kind of always been interested in lithium. Um, I'm from Western Australia originally as well. So, um, you know, it's a mining mining state, it's a resources state. So, um, you know, it's a little bit, a little bit of that as well. But I think, uh, yeah, we we had a look at lithium kind of in the first lithium boom, which was, you know, uh, a few years back, uh, kind of went at the genesis of Pilbara and Oracobra, which is now, you know, Orchem, um, and uh, and those kind of names. Probably thought it was a little bit early, probably thought it was a bit expensive for where it was and, and kind of we kind of didn't make much money out of it, to be honest. And then um, this time around, I kind of uh, met uh, Francis Whedon from, from Vulcan. Uh, we shared an office in Perth um together just by coincidence and um he was from he just moved out to the uk from the uk and he was you know starting this business and um and they were looking to do a small raise at 40 cents and um you know he he just really impressed me as an individual Uh, i really thought um he he passed the the smell test i suppose from from a from a human (laughs) being perspective he rode his bike to work every day um he bought his lunch in uh, all the kind of things that, all the little soft, intangible things that kind of really get me excited about a business owner, mm-hmm. and then, um, and then, yeah, we sort of uh, he taught me a lot about about particularly DLE, direct lithium extraction, and um, introduced me to some really you know knowledgeable experts in the field, both in Western Australia and around the world. And I've kind of just skilled myself up as as best I can really over the over the journey um, and, and tried to learn about it. But yeah, that's kind of how we came across Vulcan initially, as we sat in the same offices. <laughs> and uh, it's that that simple. Um, but yeah, we we made a pretty significant investment then, and we've continued to make investments in that business. Um, and, and yeah, m- you know, my view is is you know this could be one of the great Australian resources success stories. Um, and, and I see Francis, you know, could be end up being you know one of the wealthiest people in 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 Australia. Um, so I uh, yeah, I just think it's a it's a game changing project, largest resource in Europe. Um, you know, it's going to be produced, the produce a zero carbon product, which I think is really important. They're going to use geothermal energy that's naturally occurring in the brines to, um, to power the various chemical processes that are associated with creating a lithium hydroxide. Um, and, you know, they've partnered with some of the, some of the best people on the planet uh, in, this, in this space. Um, mm. And they're operating in what is largely, you know, what is going to be the world's largest battery market, which is going to be Germany. So um, it's a pretty you know, interesting story and yeah, I feel really grateful to um to have kind of spent a bit of time with the company and and learn about it. Um you mentioned DLE before. What's that? So is that through like hard rock or is that what is nah, that? Mean? Okay, so so you've got sort of two types of um of, of lithium mining for lack of a better word. You have hard rock, which is kind of what we're famous for here in Australia and Western Australia yeah. and and other parts of the world. Uh, essentially they dig up spodumene and then that gets processed into lithium um carbonate or lithium hydroxide, usually in China. Um, you have also uh, what's called brines. Essentially, think about it as like an underground aquifer or river um, of um, hot liquid. And the hot liquid gets pumped to the surface in the same way that you would um, 
pump or flow um, like an onshore oil and gas rig, like if you think about the Cooper Basin in, yep. in, uh, in Australia, um, and you would flow these wells and that brine comes to the surface. And in the case of in the Atacama Basin in Chile um, and Argentina, they flow these to the surface and just evaporate the water away. That leaves you with this kind of lithium-rich brine, which then gets processed. Um, and one of the ways of processing that is called direct lithium extraction. It's really similar to uh, the chlor chloroalkali process, which has been around for a very long time, which um, you know is used by a, a range of industries to create a range of products. But uh, essentially what you're doing is a chemical process to, to separate the lithium um, and then turn the turn and take and process the lithium up from a carbonate to a hydroxide and get that to sort of like 56, 57% lithium. Um, and that's that's the sort of the high grade level that these sort of uh, batteries uh, need. Um, so yeah, that, that's what DLE is. It's a it's a chemical process essentially, um, and yeah, it's just it's uh, you know metallurgy, for lack of a better word. Uh, I'm not a chemist, but that's kind of the um, the, mm. the, the bare bones of it. So I've seen the I've seen like a lot of the fields in Chile and all that where it looks like almost like the if you've seen these look like bright blue or white big dams, and then they eventually like disappear and they just become white and like crystallized almost like a crystallized powder it's hard to explain and so uh, some people say look that the hard rock is actually an advantage um over that process would you agree with that or um no i think like both both processes have their pros and cons generally speaking um hard rock's a bit cheaper to get up off the ground mm. like the capex is cheaper but the opex is higher it's got traditional kind of mining OPEX. Um, the easiest thing to do is just to think about this as comparing it to like an iron ore mine or any sort of hard rock bulk commodity mining, coal mining, um, and onshore oil and gas. That's pretty much your thing is that onshore oil and gas have lower capex. The drilling is more expensive, but getting, building the project's cheaper. In, uh, in hard rock, the drilling's more expensive and the initial works up front's a little bit more expensive. The construction's cheaper and then the operating expenses are a bit more expensive. So um, it, it really just comes down to, um, you know, the sort of MPV, I suppose, of these projects. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of assumptions you've got to make at kind of an early stage um, to be able to, to be able to really get an idea of, of what it might be. And it's probably not the best estimate at any given time. But I, I wouldn't say that there's a benefit to being a hard rock over a brine. I think um, hard rocks are very... Um, environmentally intensive you're going to use a lot of diesel you, you know for example to power the trucks to dig it up um, yeah, yeah. You're, you're digging up a large land area it's quite a an eyesore it's quite a big you know thing in terms of environmental damage on the surface um, obviously a, a brine well is just a tube and then they have a sort of car park sized operation um, <laughs> around it so it's really low footprint um, and uh, and yeah so you know it's a bit of a different sort of setup uh, from an environmental perspective and obviously if you can use the heat energy that comes up with the brine rather than say what happens in South America where you, you use the water and then the water goes away you just waste all that water it's quite water intensive um, you know you're going to have a product that's a lot more environmentally friendly um, and in my, in my opinion it's going to be a lot more appealing to you know your your car manufacturers and your battery manufacturers up the up the chain mm, that's fascinating so um that's really i really appreciate you taking us through that mate um with say back to vulcan then um so they've got a project i think you said like right next to like is it in germany or is it yeah it's in germany in the upper yeah. rhine valley where you get the nice wine from yeah beauty uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a few good things that come from there yeah. um so um you like the, obviously that the the proximity to to clients is really important um the i guess the cost nature you said it's the biggest in europe um mm -hmm. from a resource perspective how did it like can you just basically talk us through like the genesis of the business like how did they come to acquire this place like was this like and then i guess then bring us up to today and like what's required to get it into production and all this type of stuff the long, the long and the short of it is um you know france has had a a hard rock project that he sold um, into one of the Western Australian uh, lithium businesses, and sort of uh, saw that had, saw that boom in, in the first kind of lithium boom, uh, and then uh, really was was out scouring the globe 
for uh, he's an, he's a, a true hardcore environmentalist um, okay. and was out scouring the globe for a brine project um, to use the DLA technology, which um, you know he wanted to do, but was amenable to doing it. Um, he saw really two two locations to look for projects. It's the Salton Sea in California, which is where Berkshire Hathaway have their DLE um, project, and um, and also the Upper Rhine Valley in in Germany. So he uh, then partnered with uh, one of the experts on geothermal. Uh, so the geothermal industry in, in the Upper Rhine Valley has been around for a long time. They've been making energy there for and heat heat energy in particular for a long time. Um, and so he partnered with one of the experts uh, there, Horst Kreuter, and, uh, and and they went out and acquired a bunch of a bunch of licenses essentially and leases, um, and put that put that package together, and then spent some money doing the uh, the relative flyover surveys that you need to do um, to create a jork resource. Um, so that's kind of the genesis of the business. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Francis was looking for a a, a brine de- that he could DLE potentially with um, with no no carbon output. Um, and, and then, yeah, since then, they've really just gone from strength to strength, growing the resource um, through these 3D surveys and then um, and then really just looking now, they're, they're in, sort of in construction and, and final piloting kind of phase. So, um, you know, they're, they're producing, they've, they've shown that their chemical process works on the desktop. They've now shown it works at the pilot plant. They're now taking that up to a full a demo plant um and uh and they'll probably be in production i think as of the most recent announcement late 2025 um but it, it will be a pretty low copec uh, opex uh project according to the pfs and you know they'd be expecting a, a dfs a definitive feasibility study out in the first quarter of next year where we'll start to see some of the more i suppose refined economics of what was actually going to happen um but i think it's a uh you know if they can Get enough capital to, to do this, which it is a substantial sort of capex bill to get these wells up. They're really expensive wells to drill, um, and then obviously you've got to build a couple of plants associated with this as well. Um, but if they can, you know, there's I think eight, eight or nine hundred million euros. Um, if they can get it up, uh, which I think there is plenty of access to capital for these kind of businesses, um, you know, both sort of from a grant perspective, but also. Um, you know, debt markets and, and green bonds in Europe and those kind of things, um, then, yeah, it's, it's going to be pretty exciting and, and the MPVs are pretty scary, actually. Um, yeah. You know, unrisked at the moment. I mean, there's an, I think you can get an MPV of, you know, 38 bucks a share on this thing. Um, if, you, <laughs> if you want to, you, you know, if you want to run through, um, you know, the long-term price assumptions that are out there in the market. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of water under the bridge still to, 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 to go. But certainly um, the team's been... Been, been superb at execution. They're getting some delays. They're getting some normal project things at the moment, supply chains and and all that kind of stuff. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty exciting project and and really just reducing the uncertainty by the day, which you know is kind of another core thesis of how we invest. Try and find businesses where we think they can. There's uncertainties in the market. The market's thinking about you know X, Y, and Z, and we think there's a, you know a, real, a reasonable chance that over time and being patient, they can. You know, not mm. able to solve those problems for lack of a better word, and and uh, and yeah, that's I think a way to create a lot of shareholder value. Mm. A lot of people look look at like Pilbara, um, and they just see that inflection point where it went for, from nothing to hundreds of millions of dollars of profit and free cash flow, and they're like, "Where's the next one of these?" Why does why does Vulcan in particular stand out when you got these other names like I don't know how well you know them, but like Lake Resources, Core Lithium, yep. um, Sayona, like all these other plays. Yeah, so I think when you're looking at the lithium market, I've sort of talked about this before uh, on other on other shows, but I sort of think about it as sort of two distinct markets. You've got the the producers, so you've your Pilbara's, your Oil Chems, your Minres, um, Albemarle, you know, types in in the, overseas, um, and then, and then you have the the developers, and inside the developers, that's almost now become two sub markets, and you've got the near term producers. And they're going to produce like next year or late next year. Um, and then you've got those that are probably more 2024, 2025, you know, two, two and three years out. Um, so the producers that are currently, they're really moving with the lithium price um, and the, the futures price for lithium um, and as well as some idiosyncratic things that are going on in those businesses. Mm-hmm. And certainly um, like we own Pilbara in our, in our model portfolio. We think there's a 
um, you know, structurally undersupplied market here for as long as, you know, that's worth forecasting. Um, and, you know, we think there's a scenario where lithium prices are even higher than expected as more supply comes on because we think there's actually more excess demand that will appear as supply becomes more available. So, um, you know, that's kind of off to the side, diff- almost a different thesis because it's it's less sort of um, company-specific or idiosyncratic um, than the developer's corner. Then you've got the near-term developers like a Lion Town, Core, mm. um, these guys are going to be in production pretty soon, even um, and those businesses are trading at a, a very big premium to those businesses that are uh, two and three years away from production still. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm not necessarily convinced that the value in all of those is uh, not not all of those will make it to be to be a Pilbara or an Orchem or a Minres. There'll only be one or two maybe. So of that group. I've never bought any of those shares except Liontown. I think Liontown's the only viable one. Um, and at that market cap, I think it's the only one where you've got any you know, material upside and a chance to be a Pilbara or get taken out by one of those other other large mm. businesses. I think the strategic opportunity, both from a if you were a car manufacturer, a battery manufacturer, a larger miner, someone looking to diversify supply outside of where they are already, is in this cohort that's still under... Uh, one and a half billion dollar market cap um and in that cohort there's a lot of shit i don't know if you're gonna have to mute, mute that no no you're fine yeah there's a there's a there's a, there's a lot of shit right and <laughs> when i say shit what i mean is project quality so you don't buy mining companies for people you don't buy them for prices you don't buy them for um any other reason you buy projects you're buying an asset you buy it's like buying a house if the house has got crappy foundations and the roof's falling in you don't want to live in it and yeah. <laughs> it's the same with mining companies. Um, and a lot of these projects are trash. They're low grade. They're overpriced for where they are in the, in the, in the project development cycles. Too much risk for the return that's on offer. Um, and, you know, sure, there were dubious people involved in it who've got a, you know, spotty track record in terms of what they've been able to deliver or, you know, being genuine operators. Um, and, and so in, in that group, um, you know, obviously, you know, we, we think Vulcan's the, the the cherry out of the group, but also I think, you know, Piedmont, um, PLL has also got a really good strategy and project um, and uh, are moving forward and are priced reasonably relative to um, what the resource they've got, the opportunity they've got and the strategic value of that particular business. So I think outside of those two, you know, like Lake, say, for example, I've kind of, you know, shitted on them a little bit publicly but i don't mean to it's nothing personal but you know the the technology they're using with lilac's not a proven style of dla um it's not a not a commercially used thing that's been around for a long time so they might be able to get it to work and it could be well and truly worth the two billion dollar market cap that's trading at um but from my perspective i can buy something that's bigger better run by people that i know better um and uses technology that's proven and just putting together you know 10 year old plus technologies three you know two or three parts um in a, in a prime operating environment um in vulcan for half the market cap so to me you know it's just a uh, horses for courses kind of thing so i think understanding how to price these things how to compare them like i said there's no point comparing vulcan to pilbara and there's no point comparing you know vulcan to a 20 million dollar explorer mm. you know somewhere off in Albania. Like it's just not, you've got to kind of go, okay, well, there's the really early stage stuff and sort of next stage, next step. Well, what EV to resource do I want to pay for something that's in this particular bracket? Um, You know, what premium do I want to pay for something that's really early stage, but I like the people and I like where they're they're going. It's just kind of understanding um, those kind of nuanced things and not kind of trying to go lithium across the board (laughs) because I think you'll, you'll probably go wrong there. Yeah, right. Um, I've got two more questions on this and then we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time on the other two, I'm sure. <laughs> Did I give you two other companies or not? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, the other question around Vulcan is one thing that I know about it is there's a lot of really influential holders, a lot of people that are like from like mining royalty that are really closely following it. So maybe can you comment on that um, mm-hmm. and whether or not you're surprised by that? um so yeah like so hancock prospect prospecting are the with gina reinhardt's company is the 
third biggest shareholder, I think now, or second biggest share, third biggest shareholder now. Um, and uh, and then her estranged son, who's a bit of an investor uh, in a battery mining, battery min, you know, sec, mineral sector, um, is also a, a shareholder, um, you know, reasonable shareholder. Um, but I think the most sort of relevant shareholders are the fact that, you know, Vulcan's been one of the only, it's, as far as I know, it's the only developer um, to get a, an actual equity investment from a car manufacturer, and that's Stellantis. Um, that's the, they're the guys who, the, the they run Jeep and Chrysler and a bunch of other brands. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, that, they're, they're the they're the kind of a registered construction um, as well as, you know, Francis is a su- substantial shareholder and, and Horse is a substantial shareholder and, um, you know, the, the, the staff are pretty well aligned there as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's the, the register. I don't know whether it, it means a lot. I think, you know, uh, Hancock Proscoping have got a pretty good um, track record for making decent investments in, in the mineral sector. I think Mo, I mean, Rio Tinto just saw recently they're looking to get into get into lithium now um, more heavily. Um, I think it's mainly just the the price of some of these projects that's keeping the majors kind of out of it. Um, but but I don't think that's going to stay because I think the lithium price continues to outperform everybody's expectations. And we've just been through a re- big round of, of analyst upgrades to their long term prices, and I reckon in six months' time we'll have another big up round of, of long-term price assumptions. So, um, yeah, look, I, I don't think it's a huge part of the story, the the register or who, who else has invested there, um, you know, and I think everyone's individual circumstances is different and reasons for doing things different. Would I think that Hancock would take out Vulcan? No, I don't, I don't think that's, a, that's what they're there for. They're there to make money um, and get some exposure to something they're not very good at through people that are pretty good at it. That's, mm. you know. The reason we invest in all companies is that, you know, I'm not a Breville shareholder because I can make great coffee machines. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, they, they make them good and I just drink it. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, it's just really interesting because a lot of people do jump at that type of thing. They're like, oh, well, this person who's like a billionaire owns it and whatever. Um, do you think you made a comment there about the the, the big miners? Like we saw the, the BHP play for MinRes, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Do you think, like, if we do see any weakness in lithium prices for whatever reason, short term, medium term, whatever it is, do you think that's what they're waiting for? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we'll see any. I, don't, I mean, the, the same reason they're waiting is the same reason that we won't see any prices where like prices go down. I mean, um, yeah. Be, uh, I think maybe valuations might go down. Um, yeah. I, I think it's really just a case of that cohort of two and three and four years away production just sorting a bit of the wheat from the chaff over the next 12 or 18 months. And I think you'll find if that valuation gap's still there, um, that strategics, whether they're private equity groups, SPACs, whoever, will want to come in there or or major resources businesses looking to diversify, will want to come in there, pay 30% of that 100% discount and then pick up the other 70 over the next two or three years. Um, And, and, you know, big mining companies, um, you know, having spent a bit of time often look for a good project that needs a lot of capital because their core competitive advantage of being big is cheap cost of capital. Yeah. So that's the, and, and excess bodies to throw at stuff, you know, excess engineers, excess whatever. And so, you know, the cost of Vulcan developing their project, just because we're talking about it, using, you know, Hatch, you know, world's leading sort of mining consultancy group um, as their consultants, costing them a lot of money. Go look at their quarterly. They've just paid them a truckload of money to, you know, mm. to do a lot of the work. Well, if you're BHP, you don't pay Hatch anything. You just do it yourself. <laughs> you, yeah. know, so you get, you know, little Jimmy, the, the graduate engineer over there to work 20-hour days on it for the next, you know, until it's done. So um, I, I think that, yeah, it's, that's where the value opportunity is for them. And I think we're only a handful of months away from starting to see those transactions start to occur. Um, and, and I think we're going to see it in not just in lithium, I think, um, you know, nickel um, supply demand dynamics look pretty good uh, for, for the same with the same drivers, but um, different and also uh, bit un, bit under sort of under understood and, and avoided. But platinum group metals, there's a lot of platinum, palladium, rhodium in a lithium ion battery, and the supply and demand dynamics for that, particularly if you've got an ESG focus, 
um, a lot of the supply comes from uh, South Africa and, and from Africa, in, you know, more broadly. Um, and, you know, mining conditions there and, and the treatment of people there is not always um, the same as it is in, say, Western Australia. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, cool. So maybe I'll just finish with Vulcan on one, like, question, which is just, like, what are the uncertainties? So, like, mm -hmm. if we think of risk-reward, like, what are some of the whether they're just challenges or risks or however you want to frame them. Yeah. Like, there's, what they're there. Like, Don't worry about that. They're there. Yeah. Um, there's a reason it's trading at seven bucks a share. It's not, yeah. you know, I'm not the Oracle. It's not some sort of, <laughs> <laughs> it's not sort of magic, uh, magic carpet ride I can offer you. But um, the, uh, the, the, there's, there's a cut, there's lots of risks that people see. A lot of them are Fugazi, right? Like there's a, actually, there's a, a lot of those, the things that are real and the things that are pay, to pay attention to. One, they are building a big project. Building a big project is hard. Um, so, you know, there's that. But two, there's the financing risk. So how do they finance this project? If they end up having to be like a, I'll use um, an old shareholding of mine, Sarah Resources, SYR, and raise billions of dollars in capital, they will have an operating project and the share price will still be $7 a share because they've diluted the, the pool so heavily. Um, so if, if it's, you know, there's the equity, you know, the risk of having to equity finance this thing. Can they do it? Sure. Is there better ways to do it? Definitely. And we hope that they are able to access debt and, you know, some partnerships and whatever else they can do project finance. So there's that. Then there's the operational risk, which is you are drilling essentially onshore, very deep oil and gas rigs, uh, you know, hole, drill holes, for lack of a better word. And um, they flow. At the flow rates that they come up at are hugely determinant of your MPV and the, and the value of your business. So uh, if you cannot achieve the forecast flow rates uh, on those wells, then you're going to have um, a project that's not as valuable as you think, as you thought it was in your feasibility studies. And you, you're never going to be able to disprove or prove that you know what you're talking about or don't know what you're talking about until the proof's in the pudding, until the, you know, until the well's flowing. Um, so, you know, you have to be comfortable with that sort of risk profile, I suppose. And um, onshore oil and gas drilling isn't technically difficult in terms of the, you know, executing the well, like offshore oil and gas in the water is technically difficult. If you're going to drill um, onshore kind of um, USA style coal seam gas type, um, horizontal wells, they're technically difficult. Vertical wells, you know, into a underwater pool, for lack of a better word, underwater river, uh, isn't technically hard. But when you're flowing that and the pressure and managing that pressure um, through time is, is really critical and important. So you need to have expertise and you want to be operating in an area where there's um, a lot of history of drilling. And, and that's what makes the Upper Rhine so special. They've got a long 20 years worth of drill logs here where people have been drilling these same wells to generate heat energy. They just haven't used the lithium. Right. And um, so it's a, I feel like um, there's enough data there, there's enough science there to, to support, you know, having, a, having an investment at, at the moment. Um, and, and certainly um, I see, you know, the, the upside well worth the, the downside at the moment. Um, of that risk um, because it's a risk that's not going to go away. And even if they successfully drill wells one, two, three, well, four is an independent. Sure, the data gets better and the experience, but, you know, they're all kind of independent of each other as well. Same system, same geology, same people, same rigs. But, you know, these are, these are, this is the key risk for the business. And, um, but I think at seven bucks, you, you're pretty covered. Like, yep. you know, it's, it's, you're pretty covered. Yeah. Okay. That's good, mate. I love that. I love that deep dive. So, um, and I know so many people are going to get value from this conversation, even if they're not invested in Vulcan or, um, you know, necessarily that active in lithium anyway. Um, just hearing you talk about it is, is really impressive. Um, let's, let's spend a little, let's spend a little bit less time on the other two companies, just because I, I, I know a lot of people will, um, will be super keen to, to get your thoughts on these, but one of them, um, is credit corp. Mm -hmm. um so i mean i'm pretty familiar with the business but maybe if you can give us like kind of like what it is purchase debt ledgers what it actually does and how it makes money um and then we can just riff from there for a little bit simplest way to say is when owen doesn't pay his credit card debt for long enough um 
Commonwealth Bank say to him, Owen, you're not going to pay us. I'm going to sell the rights to your potentially repaying this debt to Credit Corp for 10 bucks. You owe them 100 bucks, you're going to sell it for 10. And they buy that 10 bucks uh, for 10 bucks off credit, and Commonwealth Bank are happy. They've got 10% of their money back, which is better than 0%, which is what they thought they were going to get. Um, and then Credit Corp, because of their clever little beans, go back and actually collect eight or 10 bucks of that um, mm-hmm. uh, of that debt. Um, and then they get, then they get, they hit you up a bit later and they might bet another 10 bucks. And if in fact they're so good, they might actually end up getting the full hundred bucks out of you over a period of time. And, and so as a result, um, they've paid 10 bucks for it. They've collected on average, like 28 bucks is the actual number. Um, and they make an 18%, you know, return on equity. And that's pretty much um, their, their business model is they have a, they, they buy debt for 10 bucks and then they go and collect 20 bucks worth of it. And that's sort of the, the model. It's pretty simple. They do that in Australia, which they're the, the dominant sort of player. Um, they're pretty much a monopoly business in Australia now, to be honest. Mm, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and in the US, they're, they're growing really rapidly. Um, so it's it's been a bit of a, a dry period for buying these books of debt of, of bad debts. Um, but obviously with the way the economy is going at the moment, I don't think it's going to be um, a dry period forever. And, uh, and the beauty is for, for these guys is they've now got a lower cost of capital, like we talked about before than, than all their competitors. So um, they can afford to pay more for a book and make, and still make more margin than their next best competitor um, in the space because of their size, scale, proven track record of doing it well, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, this is an example of a business that's a dominant dominant market position and they're just deepening that dominance. They're just getting, just getting more and more dominant every year. Um, you know, they're the Golden State Warriors. Everyone wants to play there. All the best players want to go there. They've got the best place to live, best owners, free agency, best, you know, game-changing <laughs> players, you know, generational players. Um, and they're going to win championships and they're going to keep winning them because they keep their advantages keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the poor old Minnesota Timberwolves are battling. So, you know, that's the, that is the, you know, that is the nature of Credit Corp and it's a pretty um, simple business and what makes it attractive from investors to it's super cheap. Everyone's just forgot, everyone's just thrown it, by, thrown it out with every other financial, you know, they think it's a cyclical, they think it's going to go through a period of weakness and you're buying it on, you know, five-year kind of low valuations um and and as a result you know you've got an opportunity here at the moment it's on a four and a something percent dividend yield um and you get paid to hold it it's going to do they just upgraded their guidance for debt ledger buying they always upgrade their guidance i think i looked in 11 years they've they've beat at every single result for 11 years yeah so they're going to beat at this result they'll beat at the next result and probably the one after that as well. So I just don't really see um, this business. They gave really conservative guidance. That's what sort of sent the share price, um, you know, south, um, along with the market and, and a few other things. And then they've upgraded their guidance. So <laughs> I, I just literally this week. So, uh, I, yeah, uh, it's a good business. It's really well run, super high quality business, ticks all the kind of quality kind of boxes that we look for. And it's pretty rare that you get to buy a business that can do, you know, over the last five years, 9% sales growth, 12% impact growth, dividend growing at the same kind of rate in a sort of cyclically unaffected kind of market with a dominant position that's only going to get better. Mm. So so then, Luke, so I've, I've just got this share price chart here in front of me. Yeah. And it like obviously looks like a, a cliff face into COVID, which you'd expect just from people mm-hmm. reacting. And in the GFC, and then more recently in 2022. Um, but the thing is, uh, Credit Corp's obviously bought like the, the books of uh, Collection House, which turned out to be one of those, do you say Timberwolves? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then the, they bought the book from Radio Rentals slash Thorn Group. I don't know what the, the equivalent would be in the NBA there. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but where did, like, so where does Credit Corp go right where all of those guys have gone wrong? Um, I don't know what the, it's a bit like saying in an advice business, like I'll just use my own, you know, um, like our business would make double the margins of other businesses in the sector. Why? Yeah. I don't know. 
like we just do it better <laughs> like it's <laughs> like it's like um you know some people there's it's it's an ability to attract the right people retain the right people put training things in place that make you know average staff good staff good staff great staff um you know it's having a culture it's having a um great systems it's you know having a a, a, a style or culture of in, in continuous improvement um caring about your people caring about your customers um all, all those little intangible things which you know a lot of people get caught up looking at numbers and return on this and margin of that yeah but like what you're actually doing is you, you're demonstrating that you're demonstrating those qualitative soft skills and i think credit corp you know, it's been operating against collection house, say, for example, for a long time. You mm. would rather, there's only one company you want to be a shareholder in. And, and why is that? Well, they're just better at it. And, you know, and being better at things sustainably, incrementally better over a long period of time is game-changingly different. And it's the same with investing. You know, you don't need to outperform by 40% every year. Just tick along, 2 3 4% mm. every year, but be consistent, have a really good process, understand how you do it. And you make money, and I think Credit Corp's that kind of stock. Like, it doesn't have to be, you know, a ten. Not everything's got to be a ten bagger. You know, yeah. generate a really solid return from a business that you understand really well. Make it a core part portfolio, part of your portfolio. If it goes up a bit too high, it starts to look a bit expensive. Trading one, two standard deviations high that needs to be sell a few, but don't sell them all. It gets super cheap. Maybe you spice it up a bit, and it goes up, you know, to five, ten percent of the portfolio. Um, and, you know, that, that's really, um, I suppose, the opportunity now is you're getting an opportunity to get set at a great price. And I'd be really surprised if Credit Corp didn't do double-digit returns for the next 10 years from here if you, if you buy stock. I'd be really, really surprised. Yeah, right. Because okay. it's an 18% ROE business. Yeah. I mean, you go and look at any industrial company. You know, I did it. I've done it with Breville recently. I've done lots of things. I've written my weekly rant that I write to, to people. And... You know, you can pretty much, if you look at a five or 10 year CAGR of a stock and you look at the five or 10 year ROE, if they're not within 1% of each other, I'll be a monkey's uncle. You know, it's a, it's so simple. Just find businesses that can sustainably generate higher or stable return on equity and they'll do those kind of returns for you every year. I bet you if you looked at Credit Corp, it's about 18% per annum that's generated for shareholders. Yeah, right. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'd love to have yeah, a look at it. I'll pull back <laughs> up and look at it, but I won't, I won't, I won't pull it up. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No, that's cool. I like it. I know there's a lot of people that, um, like across the the the, the Twitter idea, at least they they love the business and they followed it for many years. And mm. I guess that's like you said. We you said at the outset you're looking for business in 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 states of change, right? That's where your opportunity lies. So uh, this is a business that definitely seems to be like not necessarily in change, but from a sentiment perspective, seems to be in that in that camp. Um, this final business, Luke, is uh, Elders. A lot of people would know this trade on the ticker symbol ELD. They've been around the country. They see the signs for real estate, um, for whatever, you know, fertilizers and every farmer will know them. Um, The business is kind of divided up as far as I'm aware, kind of into like three main divisions. Um, Mm -hmm. But can you just give us kind of like the 101 of what Elders is and maybe just how it's changed over the years? I think that's the real important part. Yeah. So you got to think about Elders was a basket case. Yeah, um, and then it got new management four years ago or so, and now it's fixed. It's kind of the net net. And um, so, uh, you know, elders have a another business with twenty five or thirty percent market share um, of what they do, and uh, have the cheapest cost of capital essentially of, of them and Nutrium. They're sort of their major competitor uh, from overseas, which is NTR. I think the code for that is in the US. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, they're sort of running the show here in Australia from a fertiliser distribution perspective, fertiliser sales. Elders are kind of doing what, you know, if you followed Kogan or my deal when they were listed, do is you build a marketplace of established brands and then you slot your private label product in there and you cannibalise everyone else's sales. And that's pretty much um, what elders are doing. Um, and, and as a result, their margins are amazing. Sure, fertiliser prices have gone Bananas, DAP, MAP's gone gone nuts. Um, ammonia's gone nuts. But the, um, you know, we'll sort of put that to the side. You can kind of, you know, normalise out for that. Um, if you do that, you'll find Elders is a business that's expanding its margins, that's growing kind of 20% plus per annum. 
They've got real. What I love about them is okay. They've got access to capital. They go and make these small acquisitions, bolt-ons, expand, expand, get the private label in there in these farms and and grow their grow their sales. But they're super disciplined what they buy. They've got like a twenty percent IRR hurdle um, in place for for those acquisitions, and they pretty much just if, if they're not willing to pay that price, then you know they're not interested. Um, so that kind of keeps their their returns pretty good. Um, and their growth, really high quality growth. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of sort of roll up stories, but elders I more think of mm. as expanding distribution. It's not really like, oh, we're just adding their sales. What they're doing is they're adding the sales initially, but then flipping the margins. You know, the margins go from five to 15 or 20% because of the, you know, increasing uh, sales and product they can, they can push through those farms. Um, you know, in, in my industry, to be the same as acquiring. A client from someone um, who's retiring and, and then selling them mortgage broking and selling them general insurance and selling them you know whatever else that we do so um you know they it's the multi-product single relationship trusted point of contact for a farmer and i think elders has that that brand gravitas that established position in the market the various uh, partners and employees have deep roots into the communities that they operate in um, as a general comment and as a result, I don't really see a reason why elders can't continue to ride the kind of agricultural food um, sort of undercurrent and, and structural growth trend um, while extracting above industry kind of margins and growth rates through their through their dominant market position. So love it for the market position. And, and like from a valve perspective, I think like 12 bucks, it's, it's pretty cheap on sort of an EV to EBITDA basis um, on my numbers. Um, and if you go out two years, it starts to look pretty naughty, which is kind of one of my favourite things to do for some of these larger cap businesses is rather than just trying to play the next result or the next two results, think, okay, well, where's this business probably going to be in three, three or four years? And if the earnings, you know, if they've been able to grow at this rate, let's create a margin of safety and say they're going to grow at Y rate, a bit lower, and... They just keep their margins stable. What does it, mm. what's it look like? And that kind of gives you some sort of idea of, you know, where it might be. And I think for a business like Elders, it could be it could be a multiple of the current share price, actually. It's actually got a lot of upside potential, you know, everything going to plan. Yeah. How do, how do you think like the, like things like the, the, the cyclical effects of um, like things like drought, all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff affect the business? I, I think that's the opportunity. The opportunity is to say, okay, FY22 is going to be a bit busted up because of the rain. Um, mm. and, but I kind of think it's like mining prices or anything that's cyclical. You know, it's not really where we like to play. And even if we are playing, it's not the reason we want to be there is because we think the price of something's going to go up. You know, higher fertilizer prices help elders, no doubt. But they're over-earning right now. Like, you know, I think they're 27%. You know, like they've got yeah. pretty, pretty good numbers at the moment. So... Don't pay for those numbers to be in perpetuity. Go look at the bottom of the cycle. Go look at what, you know, what it's going to look like on the worst day. Figure out what you think a fair price to pay for it is on the worst day. And sure enough, you'll get a best day at some point over your holding period. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, not necessarily that you're going to sell or you're going to pick that day or you're going to be able to, you know, work those cycles out perfectly. Um, I can't predict the weather. I don't know what the iron ore price is going to be. I don't know what the AED USD is going to be um, on any given day at any given point in the future. Um, so it's an, they're, they're, they're not knowable things. And even if you think you can know, do it a hundred times and you'll get, you, you, you won't get it right, you know, more than 50. So um, I think that's a big part of investing as well is just understanding what you, what you can't know and what you won't know um, and just making sure that you get paid for that. And I think having a margin of safety when things go wrong um, helps you. You still lose money. Still, you know, it's, it's still wrong. You still get get smoked a bit, but you might not get smoked as bad as someone who um, thought, well, what if this goes right and this goes right and this goes right, then it's going to be super cheap and I'm going to make a heap of money. Mm. Um, and that means missing out on things sometimes and, and that's okay. But with elders, um, you know, this kind of 11 bucks, like you've kind of got three or four bucks of short-term kind of upside, you know, 12 months sort of, you know, price targety type stuff, but you've got another five to 10 bucks a share worth of potential value there that might get unlocked over the next sort of four to 10 years, you know, depending on what you think. And, 
if that's the case, maybe I do a double, say a doubles over eight years. Well, you know, it's ten percent per annum kind of thing. So that's a pretty good, pretty good get. And like I said, if they can sustain the kind of return on equity they've been running, even if it's fifteen percent, fifteen percent per annum, Kagar into perpetuities, about as good as you're going to get in large cap investing. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, you know, that suits me down to a T. That can go in the portfolio at 5% and I can park it there and pretty much forget about it. And then people will wonder why we outperformed. It's like, well, that wasn't that hard, was it? Um, <laughs> you know, seriously, like it's it's not, it doesn't have to be that hard. It doesn't have to be that hard. Yeah, no, I like it, mate. I like how simple it can be. Um, so one thing that I'm going to take away from this conversation look, is like you basically say that, Yes, you're looking in these industries where things are fluctuating, like credit corp with like purchase debt ledgers, interest rates, the economy, elders with agriculture. Management. Management, yeah. yeah. Um, and then even with Vulcan, like it's not lithium prices per se. It's like the structural trend in the industry mm-hmm. and the quality of the business. And then the thing that you've said probably like 10 or 20 times is low cost. Like you said like low cost, but you also said cost of capital how yeah. important those things are um, and those are ultimately what influence return on equity return on capital these types of things but so you like know, like if, when you do an mpv like what is the most important thing in an mpv discount rate yeah so what's your discount rate it's your cost yeah. of capital everyone yeah. you know all these talking heads and you know morons like me on the telly and whatever talking about all these share prices and all these stories telling me a nice fancy story about a thing and it's like well what matters most why is you know it's cost of capital. How much debt can you get? What's the price of it? How much equity can you get? What's the price of it? Like yeah. that's what drives your value. So you don't understand that and you don't understand anything. Like it's, a, <laughs> like it's, a, it's just that, yeah, yeah it is. It, it's just blowing my mind sometimes. <laughs> I love it, mate. I love how simple it could be. I hope we get to do this again, mate, because it's heaps of fun. Um, <laughs> if, if people want to find out more about Seneca Financial Solutions, where do they go, mate? Um, they can just email me, just lukel at senecafs.com.au. It's probably the easiest. Um, and Or LinkedIn, like connect with me on LinkedIn. I post most stuff that I do on LinkedIn. Um, you can subscribe to my weekly uh, rant of markets and stocks and NBA basketball, um, <laughs> which is just senecafs.com.au forward slash subscribe. Um, or, yeah, just hit me up. I like chatting to people, like chatting to young people about their portfolios and and trying to help where I can um, and, yeah, happy to engage with people. Like I, I actually enjoy what I do most of the time and, mm. um, and uh, enjoy, enjoy chatting, chatting about markets and stocks with people. I think, as you can tell, I'm pretty, pretty pumped about it all. Yeah. Do you, um, for your portfolios and that, is there, like, what's the, I, I don't know how to ask this, like, well, what's the, I guess, did, is there minimums? Because, like, for a lot yeah. of funds there are minimums right yeah so like for us i mean is there a minimum the way smas work well no there's technically not um you can buy 20 grand pretty much and because there's say 40 stocks in there at the most in in my direct shares sma um that would be you know 20 25 grand to make the lot the, the say a one percent holding kind of mathematically work um so no 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 they're they're only available through through premium uh, through the platform Yep. And, and through an, you can't go to premium direct and buy them. You have to buy them through an advisor. Okay. So um, you can always just come to me. Um, you know, we can give you some some basic advice and and get you started if that's what you want to do. Um, but it's uh, yeah, 20, 25 grand for the direct stock stuff, and then for the fund of fund stuff that we do. Uh, obviously, I'm not an expert in you know corporate bonds in Asia. Um, so uh, if we use a fund, man- we use fund managers there. We run a portfolio of fund managers across a certain asset class. Uh, probably I'd say like 80 grand there, 100 grand. So you can kind of put 15 or 20 into kind of the four or five managers that might be in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the direct share stuff, just 25 grand. Yeah, I think that's good. Just good to know, good context for people that are new to SMAs in particular. I think that's worthwhile adding. But um, there's, there'll be heaps more information on the Seneca website. There'll be links in the show notes and uh, you can hit Luke up directly via email. That's that's always a bit of fun, mate, when the email goes public. I realized there was one of my email addresses from my old place on the internet and now I know where all the emails are coming from. It's uh, it's always good, but you just get overwhelmed. But, uh, mate, hey, uh, I'll let you get back to enjoying. Hopefully it's a bit sunnier down there in Torquay. Um, let you back to enjoying life and uh, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. My pleasure, Owen. Love lovely to see you, mate, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity. So thanks very Cheers. much. 
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.